are too young, you don't know what full serve means, but it meant that when you pulled up to the gas pump, you didn't get out of your car, that some young person hustled out to your car and pumped the gas, squeegeed your windows, usually poorly. Uh, we were the original squeegee men. If you've ever been in New York City, you, you encountered squeegee people. Uh, problem was, the self-serve and the full-serve were separate. And we, and our crew, we always worked by ourselves. And so it, it, it sort of kept you hopping. Because people, back in the day when we were, when I was working at this gas station, it was during the gas crisis. Uh, when gas went from, when I was just a kid, it was 35 cents a gallon. And then it went up to like a buck 50, buck 80 a gallon. And people were, they pull up and fill their car up with gas and they drive away. And if you're on that shift, you pay for that gas that was, was taken. And if there's any of you here that did that, I'm, you know, I just want you to know, there were a number of times where I worked at that gas station for free, for week after week after week, because people would drive up and take off while I was at the full serve. Well, one day, a guy came in with a truck, and he had these, uh, some pickup trucks had uh, uh, saddle tanks. They had their own huge tank, and then they had saddle tanks, and it just, it was crazy how much gas you could put in a truck. So this guy came in, and uh, fortunately, uh, I was there by myself with just him. I'm filling up tank after tank after tank. He gives me a $50 bill. Uh, you know, I give him a couple of dollars change because he bought so much gas. He drives away. Well, at the end of my shift, my boss comes in uh, who owned the station and managed it. And he's going through the bills at the end of every shift he did this. And he goes, this is counterfeit. And of course, it was the $50 bill. And I go, what? And, you know, when, when they hire you, they explain to you, you have to watch out because sometimes people counterfeit money and they'll pass it to you. And if, if they pass it to you, you're responsible for it. So if you take that $50 bill, you're going to have to replace it with $50 out of your own pocket. Well, that's, that's what I would make working 20, 30 hours a week when you're making $1.40 an hour back then. And we didn't get tips at full service either, just so you know. My first experience was really painful to deal with the counterfeit. What I learned about counterfeits is they're, they're out there, they're, they're worthless, and they're hard to spot. And the Antichrist is a counterfeit. And I want to take you into a passage in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you have a Bible with you, if you could open it to 2 Thessalonians. Now, you may not know where that is. I'm going to tell you. It's right after 1 Thessalonians. <laughs> and if you don't know where that is, then you need to just go to your index in the Bible. But if you use your, one of our paperback loaner Bibles, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is page 821, at least in this version of it. Now, we're going to read through this passage, and then we're going to go back and break it down. And what we're going to see, there's, there's three points in here, and there's four Greek words. I'm going I'm to give you guys, your, some of you, your first Greek lesson today. But it's really simple, and you, these four words that we're going to focus on, and the, the three points that, that come out of them, will help you take away something about the Antichrist that, that I think is really crucial for you to understand then who it is. Who is the Antichrist? Who is this man of lawlessness? Uh, we don't really have any idea on how to tell what particular person he is, except that this person's coming. Uh, but what that person is going to do and, and the havoc that they bring in, in our world is going to be something we have to deal with. But it's something that we really have to deal with right now. So let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's start reading there. And uh, then we'll, we'll stop and, and we'll pray and then we'll, we'll unpack it. 2 Thessalonians 2.1 Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed 
the man doomed to destruction. So just a second. So what he's saying is that Jesus isn't going to come back until two things happen. There's this thing called the rebellion, and then there's this person called the man of lawlessness, or it, it, the apostle John calls him the Antichrist. Now, he's not called the Antichrist in this letter, but the man of lawlessness and the Antichrist are interchangeable terms for this figure. So he will oppose and exalt himself over everything that's called God or his worship, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, we're not going to look into the sort of sizzle aspect of this passage and say, what's the temple? When's he going to set it up? When's this going to happen? Uh, uh, that has been argued over by theologians and scholars for so long, and no one's ever come up with, a, I think, uh, an answer that's satisfactory because it would have settled this debate. So we're going to try to find something that's more practical than figuring out you know, dates and times and names and places. So Paul says, don't you remember that I used to, that, that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things. And now you know what's holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he's taken out of the way. And then the lawless one, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, now listen to this. this, is a, this if this doesn't get your attention, you're not awake. For this reason, God sends them powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers. Beloved, you're loved by God because from the beginning, God shows you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel so that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word or by mouth or by letter. So Paul, Paul tells us there, there's, there's sort of three sections of his thought here. The first one is he says that the last days are times of great spiritual deception. Now, some of you have done a little reading on the last days, and you know that's emphasized over and over and over. Secondly, he says that the, the spiritual, the, the last days are also times of great lawlessness. And that's the term we want to hone in on here because it's repeated over and over and over in this passage. And whoever the lawless one is, the point is not just his influence, but lawlessness is this huge issue and problem that we don't have to wait till right before Christ's return to deal with. We have to deal with it now. The mystery of lawlessness is at work in all of our lives. And the deception is related to the lawlessness. And then Paul says at the end that the last days, when he says to these believers, he says, you need to realize that the last days call for great faithfulness. So there's great spiritual deception and great lawlessness, and it calls for great faithfulness. Now there's four words. There's four <laughs> Greek words I want to introduce to you in this. And each, they're, they're sort of like bookends. And they'll, I think they'll help you hold on to what we're talking about today. So uh, in, in, if you got a program, or hopefully when you came in, you got a little uh, outline. Anybody not get an outline that wants one? <laughs> okay, Jay. Hey, can someone, uh, hey, Johnny, would you do me a favor? Out on the lobby table, there's some outlines. Grab them. You guys just, when John wanders around here, raise your hand and he'll get you one. So, Paul starts off here, and he says, listen, I don't want you to be unsettled by uh, a report or a letter or, or a prophecy or something that's supposed to have come from us that, Jesus is our, that says Jesus has already returned, because he says that, hasn't, that isn't going to happen until those two things, the rebellion and then the, the man of lawlessness is revealed. But 
What he says is, don't be unsettled. And he, this is the first Greek word. Ex apateo. I'm not going to ask you to repeat it with me because I'm not sure I could repeat it again. But it means to be seduced. It means to be deceived. And so what he's saying is, this man of lawlessness and this rebellion and this lawlessness is going to come and it's going to seek to seduce us. It's going to seek to deceive us. Down south, we would say, pull the wool over your eyes. I never could figure out what that meant. Why would you want wool pulled over your eyes? Why would you allow someone to do it? I don't know. Uh, maybe someone could look that up and, and, and write me an email this week and explain to me why we used to use that little idiom down in Texas. But it meant to be tricked. And so Paul says, listen, when things, when you're unsettled, and that's, that's a, another term that, that had to do with a ship that would, would get pulled up from its anchor and just get tossed along by the wind. So what he's saying is, when we're shaken and we're moved and when things are rocking and rolling around us, that's a time when we can become deceived. That's when we are vulnerable to being seduced by something that would take advantage of us in a way that we wouldn't appreciate. And so, Jesus, uh, uh, this is... There's an interesting parallel. Everything you read in the rest of the New Testament after the Gospel of Matthew about the last days, like if you go to Matthew 24 and you read Matthew 24 where Jesus expounded on the last days and you read what Paul said here, what Peter says about the last days, what John says about the last days, uh, what Hebrews says about the last days, you can find the pattern of it and the origin of it in the teachings of Christ and then in the Old Testament, there's this uh, thread of understanding that they have. And so in, in Matthew 24, 4, Jesus says, watch out that no one deceives you when they were asking about the last days. And down in verse 10, he says, at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Now, I could keep going through that passage, but... Suffice it to say that, that if you want to know something you can take home about the last days and you should hold on to it and not forget it is, we, number one, we live in the last days now. The last days were inaugurated with Jesus' first coming. They're going to end when Jesus returns. That's why Peter said in, at the day of Pentecost when he quoted Joel, in the last days I will pour out my spirit. Well, that was the first century. There's this long period of time, the last days. There are times of lawlessness. But they're not equally lawless, and they're not equally difficult. That the lawlessness and the difficulty is, is sort of like a wave that goes up and down. But there's this clear impression you're left with when you read the New Testament that the last of the last days, all hell is going to break loose in every sense of the word. And that's when this figure, the man of lawlessness, is going to come on the scene. But the lawlessness that he stirs up is already going on. And that's what Paul really tries to address here. That's what the New Testament addresses consistently from stem to stern. And so this man of lawlessness is going to uh, be part of a satanic deception. And the thing about deception is, it's my experience, and pardon me if I step on toes here, it's my experience that far too many of us are really naive and gullible spiritually. We're, we're so immature in terms of our ability to discern things. We, you know, and it's not the problem of our schools. It's the problem of the church, but it's also our problem. Uh, we walk around sometimes. I, as I listen to people come into my office or I have conversations with people uh, over the last 30 years, uh, since we planted this church, I'm, it never ceases to amaze me how people will hear something and think, that really sounds like a great idea. And they, they just sort of hold on to it and just bring it into their life and start living it out. And they never stop and go, I wonder you know, if Jesus or his word is some, someplace, someone that I should consult as a standard, as a, 
a, a foundation as, as a measuring rod to compare this idea to. And because this is what we do with our kids, is when, when our kids are starting to go from crawling to walking, we lock the cabinets of the kitchen because our kids will open those doors and they will grab bottles of stuff that are deadly and they will drink them because they don't have a palate that can discriminate between poison and orange juice. And they will drink whatever is in front of them. They'll put it in their mouth because they're always putting things in their mouths. And so many of us are like that. We take things in that are deadly. And then they start doing their work on us. And they start seducing us and deceiving us. And Paul says, you guys shouldn't be that naive. And so at the end of this first point, I just want to ask you, do you, do you have a healthy framework for discerning how to evaluate things that come at you uh, seeking your acceptance? Ideas that are being sold to you. Friends that say, hey, check this out. Look at this website. Read this book. Listen to this cool guy, uh, this, this great TED talk. Do you have any way of, of evaluating those things? Do you have an in, internal system that you've imbibed, that, that you evaluate? Now, as adults, you know, we, we taste things. We read things. We learn there are certain things we should eat and we shouldn't eat. Do you have that for your spiritual life and your moral life and your intellectual life? Do you have that? Because if you don't, you're, it's your responsibility. We teach you things every week. We try to teach you things in small groups and conferences and seminars. We encourage stuff day and night. But you have, to, you have the ultimate responsibility for what goes inside you. And I just encourage you to take that seriously. Because Paul starts off and says, the last days, Jesus said, the last days are days of deception. The enemy is seeking to seduce you. There is an enemy of your souls, which we won't elaborate on. We talk about it enough. But the, the end game of deception is not just to trick you. It is to draw you into something that will ruin your life. So the end game is not just to get you to, to embrace some mixed up ideas. I mean, that's bad. But faith has two elements to it. Like love has two elements to it. Love has truth. And love has a moral dimension. And this, a deception is constantly sold to us that says all love is is just affection. And we'll, we'll look at that in a second. But that's a perfect idea that it sounds so palatable. It sounds so sweet. Yeah, love, affection. But that's, there's, there are people who have affections for really destructive things. But they, ha they hold those affections as dear to them as I hold my affection for my grandson or my grandchildren or you. And those two are my wife, which, by the way, 35 years today. A, a public service announcement from your pastor. Spiritual deception, the end game of spiritual deception is lawlessness. Do you see that phrase in this passage? It's, it's just over and over and over and over. Lawlessness, lawlessness, rebellion, apostasy. Deception, the goal of deception is lawlessness. And the Antichrist is the man, here's, here's your second Greek word, he's the man of lawlessness. And the Greek word for lawlessness, and I want you to say this with me, is anomia. Say anomia. Anomia. Okay, nomos is the Greek word for law. When you put a in front of it as a prefix, it means against or anti-law. So the antichrist or the man of lawlessness is a man who's against law. He is the rebel. And if you notice, which is the second point out of this I want to make is, deception leads to lawlessness, the man of lawlessness, Paul says, is the man doomed to destruction. So deception leads you not just to have confused ideas, it leads you to lawlessness. And Jesus said, because 
lawlessness is increasing in the last days, the love of many grows cold. There's a perfect example of how love has a moral dimension. Love isn't just affection. I mean, right now, it feels like the world is just overflowing with affection in America in, in certain respects. But the, Jesus says, if we dilute love down to just human affection of some kind without recognizing love has larger moral dimensions to it, we are embracing lawlessness and it will have the opposite effect in terms of love. It will reduce love. Lawlessness will cause love to decrease and that will cause all of us to suffer. And the, this man of lawlessness, he's a man who's against the law. He's against God and against his law. And some of us have this notion that because we're under grace, we're not under any responsibility. We're not under any law. And I don't know where you got that idea. You, maybe you've gotten some teachings on grace that have been out of balance. But grace is this thing that comes from God that gives us the ability to live the life that God destined us for to its fullest, to be like Jesus, to be increasingly like Christ. And this man of lawlessness, if you read this whole passage, there are these, there, there's this two pictures of Jesus and his coming and the man of lawlessness and this counterfeit coming. And so the man of lawlessness is the counterfeit parody of the man of righteousness, Jesus. And the words, there's words that are used for both of them. The coming of the man, of the Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of the lawlessness. The revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. The revealing of the lawless one. There's, there's these, this, he's a counterfeit. And his movement and what he births in the world and what, what he encourages and he fans the flame of is lawlessness. And what it's a picture of is in the garden, when Adam and Eve were tempted, at the, at the root of what the temptation was is, if you eat this fruit, this knowledge of good and evil, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God. You will be able to decide what's right and wrong. You won't need to live under God anymore. You can be like God. It's this idea of, Welcome to a world that has no law. Because to live in relationship with God is to live under his government. And his government exists in, in civil government. It exists in, in a form in our home. It exists in a form in, at work. It exists in a form in church. Every institution has, in, it, in itself, it's, a, it's some expression of God's government. And this man, this man of lawlessness, wants to throw all that off. And the deception, that, that this mystery of lawlessness that is at work now, so we don't have to, see, what Paul's saying is, we don't have to wait for the man of lawlessness to stir this huge rebellion up. There's a mystery of lawlessness that's been set in motion, that started back in the garden, that is in all of our hearts. And Jesus, the one who at his coming will slay with the breath of his mouth and the splendor of his coming, the man of lawlessness, he's the only one that can rescue us from this mystery of lawlessness that's at work in our hearts and lives. And that the deception is to make it palatable for us to embrace lawlessness. Because in this passage, lawlessness will be judged. Because it's so destructive. It isn't just that God's really uptight. Lawlessness is corrosive and destructive. It damages it, everything. And the lie that's constantly told to us, that, that's in all of our hearts, we want it to be true. You and I, we all want it to be true that we could do what we want and it really won't hurt anybody. We all want that to be true. And we've all lived like it's really true. That's the lie that we are being told. This man, when he comes along, is going to be anointed of Satan, he's going to do signs and wonders and miracles that are counterfeits to the signs and wonders and miracles of Jesus. Now, they're not fake in the sense that they're not real power. It's just what they 
convince people of is false. You understand? They're not fake miracles. They're not like tricks like, you know, what's those two guys in, in uh, Penn and Teller? It's not Penn and Teller kind of magic. I mean, it's real magic. It's real power. But it comes from a dark power source. And its effect is to get us to buy into lawlessness. Because Satan wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And if he can get you to buy into lawlessness and into the lie that you can do whatever you want and it doesn't hurt people, that, that, that it's just a crime between, it's just something between consenting adults, and it doesn't matter, then you have contributed to the, to the deterioration of the harmony of God's good world in profound ways. And God says at some point when Jesus returns, you've either loved the truth and the truth which, you know, calls you on the carpet and you've let it do its work in you or you've rejected the truth. Uh, and this, I want to show you what lawlessness looks like. In 2 Timothy, Paul says this. He says, there will be terrible times in the last days. People, now listen, listen to the five things he says about love. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Now listen to the lawlessness, this theme of lawlessness that's all through this. Ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good. There, is, there are things that are good to love. Treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. Have nothing to do with them. So Paul's saying that these are pious looking people. People who hold on to religion, but they've never let it do its work in them. Let, let, let me give you a little, just a quick test. When you love the truth, and the truth there is a phrase that you could say is it means Jesus. When you love Jesus and you love the Father He reveals and the Spirit that comes from Him, when He's praised, you enjoy that. You delight in hearing Him praised. It doesn't annoy you. If when God is praised, it annoys you, you have a form of godliness without its power. You've never, I'm not sure. You can say that you've been converted if you don't, and I don't mean you have to like every kind of praise music that's out there, because I mean, there's country and western praise music that I would prefer to never hear again. And there's some genres of praise music, it just doesn't fit my taste. But the point of that music is to declare how good our, our creator is, and our maker, and our savior. And that's beautiful. And I knew when I heard when I met Christ, something happened inside me where I sat in that church the first time and they did all the singing and I was kind of like thinking, wow, I don't really dig this, you know. It just was really weird. And then I heard the message and I accepted Christ. And the next time I went back to the church, my freshman year in college, and I heard that music, there was something about it. I was crying. I didn't know any of the songs, but I, I went, oh my gosh, they're singing about it. That, the, the one I believe in now. There was something was different in my heart. Because the lawlessness that I had embraced and that had been the foundation of my philosophy of life, I had, to the best of my ability at that point, I rejected it. And I was sorry that I embraced it. Because I saw on the cross what Jesus did for me. And it was a picture of what sin does to people. Jesus, as a victim of injustice and evil. He was a, a picture of what lawlessness does. That lawlessness can blind us to innocence. And we can destroy it selfishly. Because Jesus was on the cross and he said to them, Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. They didn't. They knew they were getting rid of Jesus. They, they were guilty. There was a lot they knew, but they didn't grasp the enormity of the injustice that they were participating in. That's what lawlessness does. It, it, it just it degrades our humanity. 
And when we come to God through Jesus, we're coming and saying, God, I've been a lawless rebel, and it's ruined my life. I've been the architect of my own misery, and I've, I've wreaked havoc in my world. And we, Now, we don't have the depths of a grasp of that that we should, but there, when you come to Jesus, there's some sense that you realize there's something for you to be forgiven of, that you can't blame on other people, that you own it. Jesus died for you. He died for, for us. And so Satan wants to get you back into that and seduce you into thinking you can do whatever you want and that grace will cover whatever you do, however long you do it. But there's this idea that's, that's mixed in that. It's sort of like those kinds of codes that, you know, you, you open an email because it it, it, it sounds like it's from a friend, or it sounds like an interesting idea. And inside that email is this malware that just wrecks your computer. Or it, it steals important information from you that harms you. And lawlessness, it feels so good. That's right. Be who you are. Go with it. Do what you feel. But the Bible gives us this other perspective about who we are at the core of our being. It says what we're broken at the core of our being. We are made in the image of God. And we're not as broken as we could be. But we are deeply broken. We're deeply flawed. And Satan wants us to buy into this as believers. That we can embrace this lawlessness and there's no cost to it. And that this distortion of love that is sold. That it, it, there's a new version of it today that's out there. But it's the same old version. It's, it's version 3.0a. It's just got upgrades for our sophisticated time. It, 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 it suits who we are in our, in our unique compromised place right now. So God sends a delusion, it says here. This is that, that part that I said was kind of scary to read because it says something that you think God would do that. Look at this verse again. This is, he's warning, Paul's warning those believers. He says, they, per okay, uh, the, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles and signs and wonders and every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends on them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. That word wickedness there is a word that, that's just spread all throughout the New Testament. You know, wickedness, it sounds like, gosh, an old, like that's a word that Mark Twain used to use. You know, wickedness. Gosh, that's, that's an anachronism. Why, John, find some updated version of that. Well, the Bible calls, uses that word wickedness because it, it's this rich word and Jesus used it, and the apostles used it. It was, it was part of their vocabulary, and it described something that we could choose to prefer, because that's what it says here. The people that God sends this delusion on are people who, instead of believing the truth, they have, the word delight there also means to prefer. They have preferred lawlessness. They preferred the idea that you can do what you want and it, and it really won't matter. That you can reject what God wants, our creator, who's wiser than us and, and better than us and only wants what's best for us. That we can reject that and we can go our own way. And that we prefer that. Now, that's the thing. See, this is what you have to ask in your heart is, do I prefer that, going my own way or the truth? Because there's always, like in Revelation, it says, behold, I, I stand at the door and knock. When you know Jesus, there's this knocking on your heart of, of Jesus and his truth and his love and his goodness. It's knocking and it's just inviting you deeper into him and into his life and what he's like. His humility, his, his courage, his forgiveness, his generosity. His honesty, his vulnerability, his childlikeness, all these things that make our lives flourish. But then there's this other knock on our heart. It sounds a little different, and you can tell the difference. And it's this knock that goes, come on over here and just do what you want. 
have it your way. I mean, the, the marketing is slick. It's, it's appealing. Be true to yourself. Have integrity. We take a word like integrity, and it gets put through this little translator, and integrity means whatever you desire, live out of that. Be true to that desire. There's no sense of, is that desire twisted away from God's will? That's what wickedness means. And the, the Greek word is adikia. And Jesus used it. I'm going to give you a place where Jesus used it. And I'm going to show you. Well, actually, we'll skip that. I'll, I'll just tell you, Jesus used it frequently. But one of the surprising places where adikia is used, I'm going to read it to you. And it's smack in the middle of this famous passage on love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. There, there's that idea again in it. In other words, it's not lawless. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Here's the money line. Love doesn't delight in wickedness, in adikia. Love rejoices with the truth. See, in our celebration of love, we take what God has given us that was so costly. Greater love is this than knowing is this than one lay down his life for his friends. Well, God laid his life down for his enemies. And love has this rich dimension of truth and, and this moral dimension to it. And we have diluted it to where it's just a feeling in our hearts about something that we desire. And it's been torn. And, and is love, does love have that? Yes. Real good love does have that, but it has other ingredients too. There are lots of foods that actually have ingredients in them that if you took that ingredient out and you took enough of it, you could die from it. But in combination with other things, it's life-giving. And so Paul says here, love, when he's talking about love, this beautiful poetic passage that's spoken at weddings, it's on posters that people go, oh, wouldn't the world be a better place if we loved like that? But it says love doesn't rejoice in lawlessness. It rejoices in truth. Love has a moral dimension to it. And affection, love that's just affection is a counterfeit. Love that's just affection, just desire, is a counterfeit. It's a parody of what's good and true. And it will not give life. And the last days are called a faithfulness. And, and Paul says to them, and we'll close with this. Paul says, I'll sum up. So spiritual deception, which I, I talked about. Spiritual deception, counterfeits, lead to lawlessness, and lawlessness leads to judgment. Spiritual deception is not to be trifled with. And if, if you give in to spiritual deception, it will lead you into lawlessness, which is not loving, no matter how many people says it is. And that lawlessness will bring the judgment of God on our lives. And for a while, it'll just bring discipline. But there's a point where you as a believer, the Bible says there are things that if you practice them, if you practice them, you understand, if they become a lifestyle to you, they will cause you not to inherit the kingdom of God. No matter how secure we are, we can come to a point in our life where we go, I don't want Jesus. I want this thing more than I want Jesus. I'm willing to embrace this thing. I'm willing to live for money. I'm willing, the, the three, sort of the, the trinity of evil are all things that are good that, that are taken out of proportion. Money, sex, and power. Those three things have ruined more souls than anything. And spiritual deception will lead you to live a lawless life to the point, it can, to the point where you go, I want money more than I want Jesus, or I want power more than I want Jesus, or I want some form of sexual expression more than I want Jesus, even though there's nothing wrong with power, there's nothing wrong with money, and there's nothing wrong with sex defined properly in its right proportion, in its right context. But idolatry is at the base of every sin. If you take the Ten Commandments, the last nine commandments, and the last six in particular, are all broken when you break, if you break one, you've broken the first commandment first. Have no other gods before me. You don't lie until you want something more than you want God. You don't covet. You don't do any of the things. You don't kill someone until you want something more than you want God. 
more than you're willing to honor God. And so Paul says to them, he goes, I mean, I think when they're reading this point, they're going, they're kind of breathless. Oh, no, are we doomed for, for judgment? We were really wicked people. I mean, the Thessalonians are just like us. We like to think of ourselves today as we're civilized and we're, you know, sophisticated and we, you know, our, our society is, has, has come to a, a greater place of, uh, you know, being human than these poor people who lived in the first century were. But it's relative, you know. A hundred years from now, people are going to look at things that we're doing now and they're going to be aghast that we could be doing things that we're doing now and not be ashamed of it. You watch. Just like we look at people a hundred years before us and we see the way that they lived and go, how on earth could those Christians think that way? Well, it's possible that you don't have enough moral perspective and that you need more. And every culture that we're so proud of, you know, this place that we're at and, uh, you know, our our monuments to ourselves and the books that we write about, all of our wisdom. But there's points where you, when you stand before the one who alone is good, all of a sudden you get this perspective. Wow, we're not as good as we thought. And I think the Thessalonians, when they hear Paul saying, God takes this seriously, he takes lawlessness seriously, they look in their own hearts and go, there's still some of that in there. Is it? Can you see it in your heart? Because I've laid it out here. So, but he said to them, God hasn't destined you for that kind of judgment, Thessalonians. He said, God loved you. God chose you. God saved you through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. And that God calls you to share in the glory of Jesus. So that was their destiny. That was what God had for them. That's what God is for you. But in this time we live in, we have to get a hold of the idea that we are called to stand firm. What Paul says at the end of this passage We'll get back to it. He just says, uh, he called you to share. He called you through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you. And this is the bookend, the stand firm there and hold to the teachings. That The teachings is this word paradosis. And it means truth that's passed on to you that you're supposed to pass on. And what Paul started this whole text with, he said, when, you're, when things are shaking and you're, you're open to be deceived, he says, this is what, where that's going to take you. And so with that in mind, you need to stand firm. You can't take it for granted that you're going to be able to deal with this, the power of lawlessness. It's powerful. We are in the shallow end of lawlessness right now. A day is coming. We may not face it, but someone is going to face the power of lawlessness that is empowered with signs and wonders and miracles and all of our modern marketing that, that we see today is, per, is used constantly to persuade people to buy into things that are bad for them, right? You see it every day. We are in the shallow end. It's going to, lawlessness is going to go off the charts. But it's no less destructive today because you're in ankle deep lawlessness. Now, I might be underselling it. Maybe we're in waist deep lawlessness. But lawlessness is this dangerous thing. And he, so he says, to stand firm, the way you stand firm is really simple. We'll leave you with this. And then, uh, Adam, why don't you come up here, wherever Adam is, if he's still here. Instead of being moved and shaken and deceived and seduced, he says you're supposed to stand firm according to the tradition, the truth that has been passed on to you, the paradosis. And there's two things you have to do to stand firm. You will not stand firm unless you do these two things. Jesus said, first, whoever hears my... At the end, at the end of the, the uh, Sermon on the Mount, he said... Whoever hears my words and builds his house on them like they become the foundation, whoever hears my words and obeys my words is like a man who builds his house on a foundation of rock. And when the wind and the storms and the rain burst against that house, it will stand. But the person who hears my word and doesn't obey it is like a person who builds their house on a foundation of sand. And when the wind and the rain and the storms hit it, 
that house collapses. And in one of the Gospels, he says, and great is its collapse. So Jesus, two, he said two things there. For you to stand firm, you have to make it your mission in life to every day hear Jesus' word through his word, his written word, and seek to obey it, seek to put it into practice. But then that's not all that it is because the idea of paradosis is you receive something and you pass it on. And there's like, imagine like a triangle. You've really, you, you grow only to the degree that you move through this triangle. The first point of the triangle is here. Second point is obey. Third point is teach, pass on. And that means reproduce. That means share and give away what you're being taught. Those of you who have opportunities to share things that you've learned, you know what it's like. As you're in the, the exercise of sharing something, you learn things about that. It becomes more real to you than it was when you just heard it and studied it on your own. When you begin to pass it on, paradosis has this power in the passing on to change you in new ways. But there's a deception. Here's the thing. The deception is this. I can just hear the word, and that's all God wants me to do. And you may waltz in here week in and week out. You may listen to great podcasts, read wonderful books, and take that information in. But Jesus said it, and his disciples said it, like in James. James says, if you just hear the word and you don't become a doer of the word, you deceive yourself, which is a sad thing. It's one thing to be deceived by somebody else. It's, it's terrible to deceive yourself. So I want to ask you today, have you felt yourself get in the grip of this lawlessness, this mystery of lawlessness? I know I can look back in my life and see old ways of thinking and acting that constantly come and knock on the door of my heart. But I also see new ones. I see things that haven't really been a part of my life that still want to draw me in. And I want to ask you today, have you opened the door, even a crack? You know, maybe you open the door and you keep the, you think, I can keep the chain on, right? <laughs> we could talk through the chain. Or, or I'm just going to talk to you through the little hole. And I'm, I'm talking, you know, if you talk to that thing, it's, it's doing its work on you. It's starting to, to put these roots into your heart. And those roots will bear fruit. Maybe you've thrown the door open completely and just said, yeah, lawlessness. It's, it's so cool. It's so hip. And I'll tell you one thing. It will cost you to stand firm today. In the ways that, that you need to stand firm, in, in loving, humble ways, just to stand firm where you work and not participate in the rumor mill and the attacking the company and attacking your fellow workers and attacking your subordinates and attacking you know, the people who you report to, all of that thing, when you don't do that, you will suffer for not participating in that. And there's a hundred other things that are the currents of our culture that if we don't participate in them, it will cost us. But I know this, this isn't a legalistic perspective. Jesus is the truth. He is who we're being loyal to ultimately, not to some set of rules. And, and, and frankly, some of you may have an opinion about the display of the Ten Commandments. My opinion is, I want to see it written on people's hearts. I think that's the place it needs to be written. It just seems so easy. If we put the Ten Commandments out there, we think, oh, we have a just society. We have, a, we have an outward form of godliness without power so many times. I grew up in places in the South where the Ten Commandments were posted in, in my classroom. And I was in a segregated classroom. Piety without the power. Jesus is coming for our hearts. And I mean, I hope you feel that here right now. He's knocking on the door of our hearts and he's saying, there's no room for embracing this spirit of lawlessness in me. You will, if you embrace that, you will crowd my presence out of your life. And the life that I want to give you and, and what I want to nurture in you, the good in you and the, the humanity in you and, and the person that you're meant to be, 
it will just wither. But to to stand firm in in this day is going to be hard. But Jesus showed us it's worth it. He stood firm and they killed him, but he rose again from the dead. And then his life gave life. His life is going to give life. I really believe there are individuals here. You're, You're in the throes right now of having to decide whether you're going to be seduced by this mystery of lawlessness. And if you are, if you have been, the good that you could be to your community is, is, is being choked off. And I, I just want to close and sing this song and invite you and, and just in the privacy of your own heart to see if Jesus is trying to draw you and open your eyes to see that you've been seduced by the spirit of lawlessness. And, and, and maybe you weren't looking to be a lawless person. That, that the persuasion was so effective that it just sucked you into it. But you see, maybe with a little more clarity now, that this is a dead end and you want to run from that. And, and maybe you could take a cue here. Maybe you're sitting here, and, and if I could be pointed with some of you, you're just thinking, man, this guy is so narrow-minded. He, he's, he's part of the past. He's part of a world that we're soon going to leave behind. I want to tell you, in the name of Jesus, if you're thinking that, you are in the grip of the mystery of lawlessness, and it's killing your soul, and you don't even know it. And God warns you, at some point, if you keep going down that road, just like Pharaoh, he hardened his heart when Moses kept coming and saying to him, let my people go. Stop this injustice. And he hardened his heart over and over and over. There was a point where God said, okay, I'm going to harden your heart now, and I'm going to make you an example to other people. Because the worst thing that God can do for you is to give you what you want. You understand that? The worst thing that God could do for us is to answer every prayer we pray, because we're so out of touch with what we really need. And Jesus is coming. He's showing us the way of life is going to be a way of self-denial. It's going to be a way of taking our cross up, but there's life in it. And I want to pray that the Lord would just give you today, a, a, he would bless you with what Peter said. He, he would bless you to turn you from that lawless path that you've taken a few steps on, or maybe you've gone down further than you meant to. Maybe you're way down it. Jesus is just saying, I want to call you back. I have something better for you than that. So why don't you stand with me and... Uh, We'll just close, just just do it twice, and uh, we'll dismiss you guys. Lord, we we live in in perilous times, your word says, terrible times. These last days are challenging times, but we believe you're you're with us, and we uh, ask for grace right now as we close our gathering, just to, to bring ourselves to you and to hear your, your gentle invitation to turn from our, our, our wicked ways, to turn from our lawlessness and to embrace you as Lord to, and to receive your forgiveness and receive your love. And I pray that there would be a, with this, as we open up our hearts to you, as we sing this song, there'd be a cleansing of our minds and our hearts. You said that you chose us to be saved by the sanctifying work of your spirit. And if you're here today in the name of Jesus, as you call on him, as you sing this song, I pray that you would experience in your mind and in your soul the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. That he would begin to set you apart again for love and truth and goodness and beauty and righteousness. That it would be a work of the Spirit in your heart. That your mind would begin to become clear again. There would be a, a, a washing through your soul as we sing this song in Jesus' name.